All right, welcome to Revolution Church. So glad that you guys are here today. If you're in Jasper, thanks for joining us as well. As Pastor Jason said, uh, we are going to be continuing in Romans chapter three today. I am excited and honored to be here with you. We're gonna be looking at verses nine through 20. And so I hope that you have enjoyed and benefited from this series so far. The book of Romans is just an awesome book full of so many treasures. However, the first three chapters of Romans have not necessarily been easy to swallow. There's been some tough things that Paul has said as we have seen God's indictment just unfold verse after verse since chapter one verse 17. Now, thankfully, Paul's conclusion, which we're going to look at today, is just as bad. So, happy Sunday, everyone. Paul's words are strong, but they are honest. And we need honest people in our lives, because honesty is so important. I wish someone would have been honest with the eighth grade me and told me that afros went out of style in the 70s. Yeah, that's me. They were never in style for white guys, which I didn't know that either. Did you know that? Why didn't you tell me? When I moved here five years ago, I wish someone would have been honest enough to tell me, hey, don't become an Atlanta sports fan unless you enjoy losing games and years of your life. It's just true. On a more serious note, I would hope that someone would be honest enough to tell me about any sins or shortcomings in my life that I may be blind to. On a very serious note, I would hope that if I ever had a life-threatening illness, that the doctor would be honest enough to tell me the truth before it's incurable. See, the passage we're going to look at, it's an It's a tough passage, but it's an honest passage that if we embrace it instead of pushing it away, we will actually see that in the end, it will lead us to life, to healing, and to freedom. So as we work our way through this tough passage, I want us to keep this in mind. There's a phrase I want us to keep in mind. The diagnosis is dreadful, but the disease is still curable. The diagnosis that Paul is going to lay out, it's dreadful. There's there's no getting around it. There's no sugarcoating it. But the disease is still curable. We have a cure. There is a great hope for us still. So with that said, let's go and read our passage for today. I just want to get uh, the whole thing in our minds. We can see sort of a framework and where Paul's going to take us. And then we'll pray and we'll uh, dive in, just go through a couple verses at a time. Again, we're in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul starts off with a rhetorical question. He says, what then are we Jews any better off? His answer, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, the parts that are comforting and the parts that tend to cut a little bit. Lord, we know that your word ultimately is for our good and your word points us to Jesus. And so I pray that as we go through this passage, God, that you would allow us to see Jesus, allow us to have a humility as Paul is laying out this diagnosis and as we see things or hear things that, that rub against what we believe, God, I pray that we would, instead of becoming frustrated or becoming defensive, God, that we would submit to you, we'd learn, we'd listen, and you would point us to healing. We love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, now that we have seen the whole of what Paul is saying, let's go ahead and unpack this a verse or two at a time. Go back to verse nine with me. That's where we'll start. Paul says, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Paul's conclusion, his summary statement, his diagnosis based on everything that he has talked about from chapter one, verse 17 until now is this. All are under sin. That's Paul's big diagnosis. All are under sin. Jews, Greeks, which just meant everyone else, are under the power and the guilt of sin. And that is a weighty and dreadful diagnosis, but that's the foundation that Paul is going to be working from for the rest of our passage. So from this foundation, what you're going to see is this. Paul is going to build his case out. He's going to prove that the diagnosis he laid out that all are under sin is fair, that it is just, and he's going to do so by presenting the evidence of the internal effects of our sin and then showing the external effects of our sin as well. And he's gonna do this by stringing together some Old Testament texts. So that's what he's quoting in verse 10 through 18. So let's start with the first piece of Paul's inward proof and we'll work our way down from there. In verse 10, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That is quite the start. Because I would imagine that in Paul's day, the people that heard this, or even in our day, when we hear this or when we read this, there is a defensiveness that goes up. There is a series of rebuttals that well up in us when we hear that. We may say, well, hold on a moment, Paul. Don't lump me in with that group. I go to church every Sunday. Well, Paul, I've made my share of mistakes, but I haven't killed anyone or anything. Paul, I've been faithful to my wife. I've been good to my kids. We pray before meals. What else do you want? Paul, how about you just take a gander over the fence or you walk upstairs and you meet my neighbors? Then we'll talk about who's righteous and who's unrighteous, especially at three in the morning when the music is still going. Then we'll talk, Paul. 
But all of our righteousness rebuttals are horizontally informed. We come up with these comparisons by looking at others. Well, well, he, well, she, well, they. But you notice none of those comparisons work vertically. We try to compare ourselves to God. Well, but God, oh, it's not gonna work. And there's a reason for that. The reality is, is that our standard of righteousness is not God's standard of righteousness. God's standard of righteousness, according to this passage, is that no one from those who hate God to those who think they have kept all the rules, no one is righteous in and of themselves. No one is righteous on their own. No amount of righteousness or moralism can save us. Not by coming to church, not by following all the rules, not by tithing, not by obeying all the customs, not by avoiding cursing when you stub your toe. None of those things are going to save us. So we are stuck in our unrighteousness. And this is bad news. But thankfully, it's not hopeless news because Paul is going to continue. So obviously, this is a tough start, but Paul is not done yet. Verse 11 goes on. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Now, let me just let you in on something now. The more this diagnosis unravels, the further Paul gets into this, the more offensive it becomes. The more offensive it becomes. It's just true. So this phrase tends to shock us a little bit. We say, no one seeks God. What do you mean no one seeks God? I mean, I had to think about it for a little bit because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, surely there are people that are seeking for God or searching for truth or trying to understand the meaning of life. But I learned two things in studying this that sort of prove my initial thinking incorrect. For one, many times when people are seeking some form of a higher power, they are oftentimes seeking the benefits of God, but not God himself. So they're searching for happiness or for meaning or for significance. But what they're really doing is saying, okay, if there is a being out there, if there is a God out there, what can they give me? What can they do for me? So they're not really seeking God for himself. Now, admittedly, this can be confusing because maybe you're thinking about your conversion and you're going, well, I remember searching for God. I remember seeking after God. I have a friend, I swear they, they are seeking after God. I know it. Well, that may be the case, but that brings up the second thing because on the one hand, we say no one seeks God, but that's in and of ourselves. The second thing we see is that no one truly seeks God unless, it's a big word there, unless God seeks them first. So you may have sought God. Your friend may be seeking God. Your family member may be searching for God, but I can assure you it is not of their own volition. It's because God, the God that we serve is a seeking God. He is a seeking God. And we see this in John chapter six, verse 44, Jesus echoes this. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me 
draws him. Unless he is drawn, he ain't coming to God. So our God is a drawing, seeking, initiating God. So if I am saved, if you are saved, it is only because God in his awesome, undeserved grace that he broke through our cold, hardened, dead hearts. And he did this despite the fact that we weren't righteous. Despite the fact that we weren't searching, he was searching for us. That is grace. See, I told you that as we go through this, Paul's words are gonna become more offensive, but we also have to see that the more this diagnosis unravels, the bigger God's grace gets. Because the more he unravels this diagnosis, the more we realize, man, I don't have that much to offer. I may not be as good as I thought I was, but that makes God all the much greater because he saved us anyway. So none of us will truly see God unless God seeks us first, but thankfully he does. Paul goes on in Romans chapter three, verse 12. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's a lot that I could unpack here, but I wanna focus on the last part of that verse because that is what we in the South call a doozy. He says, no one does good, not even one. And at this point, the moralist would throw his hands up. Well, okay, the, the righteousness part, that frustrated me a little bit. I was a little confused. You said I wasn't seeking God. Then, you know, I got a little riled up again, but now you're challenging my goodness you're challenging whether I'm a good person. I'm not having this. And that's not a correct response, but it's fair because again, as I'm looking at this, I have to wrestle with this because I go, well, it looks like there are plenty of people in the world who seem to be doing good. Seems to be like there's plenty of people in the world who we would consider good. In fact, I saw this picture recently. It's the Trinity of Wholesomeness. This is Bob Ross, Steve Irwin, and Mr. Rogers. And if you think of good, you probably think of these three guys. You have Bob Ross, who's the happy little accidents guy. And um, in fact, my, my sister-in-law, she was visiting recently, and she's on a Bob Ross kick right now. So I don't know why, but she is. And so there was multiple days where I came home, and my wife and my sister-in-law were on the couch watching 30-minute videos of Bob Ross painting a tree. Anyone ever done that before? Yeah, don't raise your hand, right? You don't want, some of y'all are like, mm -hmm. it's actually quite soothing though. So if you're stressed, hey, have at it. Steve Irwin, I mean, he's the greatest of all time. No one will ever take his place. And then Mr. Rogers, who is obviously the nicest man in the world and has a dope sweater collection. You notice all the young people now, we're just trying to look more like Steve Rogers. Like, did you ever think about that? Or not Steve Rogers, he's Captain America. I, I can't work out enough to look like him. <laughs> Mr. Rogers, Fred, you get the point. These are the people that we think about when we think about good people. Now, obviously these are extreme examples, obvious examples, but even beyond that, it seems like there are good people in the world. 
There's people who give to alleviate poverty. There's people who help their elderly neighbors. I mean, we have doctors and nurses doing great things in our society. So the question then becomes, well, aren't all of these people doing good? Well, yes and no. Let me explain The problem here is similar to what we talked about with the righteousness discussion. The root problem is really that our definition of good is different from God's. See, God's definition of good has to do with both the external action, the outward action, and the inward motivation. So someone can do something that aligns with God's word, like caring for someone in need, and it still not be classified as good, biblically speaking, because their motivation wasn't the glory of God. That's what makes something a good act biblically, if it aligns with what God says and if it's done out of a love for God and for God's glory. Now, there is a cultural definition of good, There is what one theologian calls a civic righteousness. There are things that happen in our society that we can be thankful for, that we can be grateful for, that may even be a shadow pointing to uh, Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily make them good, biblically speaking. So they can be culturally good, but have a different definition according to the Bible. Now, I realize that this can sound a little bit harsh, and so I want us to keep something in mind. I want us to keep in mind the fact that that this is still talking about salvation. We have to keep Paul's diagnosis in mind. He's talking about the fact that we are under sin and cannot save ourselves. So at the end of the day, before we start arguing about definitions, regardless of whether you have a cultural definition of good or a biblical definition of good, good cannot save Good, however you define it, does not save. God saves. And he saves apart from our righteousness, our seeking, and our good works. And we are still building a case for God's amazing grace. So in these first few verses, we have seen Paul prove that we are under sin by exposing what's going on in our hearts, our inward unrighteousness, But for the next few verses, Paul is going to show us how those things actually make their way outward. So there's still more to this diagnosis, and we are still working towards a cure. Verses 13 through 14, Paul says this, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So Paul is not finished, in case you were wondering. He's still got some stuff to say, but he's moving forward and talking about the external effects, and and he uses some strong imagery here. He uses images like a grave, snake venom, cursing, things that are all associated with either hurt or death. I think Paul is doing this because he's trying to show us just how bad this has gotten. But most of you may have caught that just through hearing it read, but what you may have missed is this trajectory that Paul lays out. 
He lays out this trajectory that starts in the heart and then makes its way out. Look at what Jesus says about our heart in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He said, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So that means the words you say, good, bad, or ugly, reveal what is stirring in your heart. I'll give you a second to think about that. That's a tough truth. But it's what Jesus tells us. So now let's connect that to Paul's words. He says, if wickedness starts in our heart, it doesn't stay there. Rather, the trajectory is that it travels from our heart to our throat, to our tongue. It spills onto our lips and it comes out in our words. And so Paul is showing us this doesn't stay inside. In fact, I think Paul's getting a little bit practical here because some people may not like the initial diagnosis of what Paul is saying is going on in your heart. And so they may push back and go, well, I don't know if I believe what you're talking about happening inside is true. And Paul's like, you don't have to believe it. Just listen to the words that come out of your mouth. Listen to the way you talk to one another. You talk about one another. You're proving my point because what comes out of the mouth is really a heart problem. You guys ever met someone you thought was a Christian until they opened their mouth? Hopefully it's not you. Someone who uses their tongue as a dagger, who sprays venom aggressively and passive aggressively whenever they can, who uses their words and every syllable to kill hope and joy, whether it's on purpose or whether it's not. It's evidence of a heart condition. Now, obviously, there are people who are like that all the time. Those are the people you lovingly avoid at family get-togethers. But then there's some people that are a little bit in between, but then there's us. Because at the end of the day, all of us have said something we wished we could take back. All of us have said something, whether that was to a spouse, to a parent, to a teacher, to a friend, to an ex. We all have things we wish we could take back. We all have things that we've said and we've thought, where did that venom come from? Well, Paul says it came from the heart and it worked its way out into our words. So it's revealing what's going on internally. Now, after this, Paul takes the trajectory a step further. He says, your heart doesn't just affect your words, but your actions as well. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. So now it's affecting our actions and now our rebuttals and our defensiveness, it's starting to rise because now we're going, okay, Paul, the people you're talking about, they sound like some hooligans. They sound like some riffraff, but surely that is not our sophisticated society. Anyone watch the news lately? Regardless of your flavor, turn on the news for 10 minutes. You're going to see some mixture of violence or unrest or lack of peace. And that's us. That's our society. Those are our people. 
But our objections go further than that. We go, okay, well, that's our people, that's our society, but that's not me. I would never do that. I would never say that. But if those are your words, if that's our response, then that just means we've forgotten Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter five, verse 21 through 22. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So you may not have murdered anyone, but have you been angry with someone? You may not have shed blood, but have you ever insulted someone out of frustration? And just to make sure you're telling the truth, how about next time you're in Atlanta traffic, I'll sit in the passenger seat. Next time I'm in Atlanta traffic, you sit in the passenger seat and we'll just see who's righteous. Answer, neither of us. I came back from a Hawks game uh, earlier this week and I probably had to repent at one point. And by probably, I mean that I did. (laughs) Jesus' words leave us here with no out. He's showing us that we are as guilty and as under sin as anyone else that we want to look at from a distance, anyone else that we want to point the finger at. Jesus says, no, you're just as guilty. And this is proven by what's going on in our hearts, what's coming out of our mouths, and what's coming through our hands and feet. And I think Paul used that language on purpose because he's trying to cover every space. He talks about our heart, that's everything in between. And then he says, your mouth to your feet. So he's talking, hey, from head to toe, you are sinful. From head to toe and everything in between, there is no part of us that is not affected by sin. And this is why we can do nothing to save ourselves. It would take someone entirely righteous to save us from the entirety of our sin. And now we're getting a little bit closer to a cure. Look at the last Old Testament quote that Paul says here in verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So here Paul is explaining why. He says, hey, here's all of the effects of your sin and here's why you're acting that way because there's no fear of God before your eyes. And there are a lot of ways that we can take this, but I think the best way to really understand the depth of this is by looking at the Old Testament passage that Paul is quoting Look at Psalm 36, verses one through two. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Look at the way another translation phrases the last part of this verse. It says, for with his flattering opinion of himself, he does not discover and hate his iniquity. So what Paul means for us when he says there is no fear of God before their eyes, on one hand, he means 
when he says flattering opinion of himself, he means that we don't fear God because we still tend to prop ourselves up as God. We don't have any fear of God before our eyes because we struggle submitting to God because we are propping ourselves up as God. We have too lofty of a view of ourselves. The second thing he says, he does not hate his iniquity. So he's saying the reason that all of this is true, the reason we don't have a fear of God before our eyes is because we still love sin too much. And that's painful to say and to admit at times. So the diagnosis that Paul lays out is dreadful. We're under sin. We can see that inwardly and outwardly. And the reason for this is because we don't fear, love, or tremble before God like he deserves. And right now, it's okay if you feel the weight of that. Because that is weighty and it presses down on us but we gotta go ahead. We gotta get to the cure. What does this mean for us? What's the result of all of this? We'll look at verse 19. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What Paul is saying here is he's saying the result of this diagnosis that we are all under sin, that we cannot save ourselves, the result of this is that when we stand before our awesome, holy, incomparable God, all of our excuses and arguments will ultimately fail. In the end, when when someone tries to stand before God and they say, well, God, listen to my intellectual argument. Listen to the excuse of why I didn't follow you. It's not going to be good enough. And we see this through what we've already studied. In chapter one, Paul tells us that nature reveals God to us. In chapter two, he says that our conscience reveals God to us. The law is written on our hearts. In chapter three, he talks about how the Jews first received the scriptures and then from there it went to the Gentiles. And so for all of us, we have access to God's word. And so when we stand and we try to object, our mouths will be stopped because no excuse will do in that moment. This also means that when we stand before him, and we try to hold up all of our good deeds and prop them all up and say, God, look at all the things I gave to you. Look at all the things I did. Look at all the people I helped. I know I didn't follow you or submit to you, but look at my goodness. When we hold those up, all of those will blow away like chaff in the wind. Because if we are entirely under sin, it's going to take an entirely righteous savior And our good deeds aren't going to cover it. So this leaves us in a bad place. If we're standing before God and we have nothing to offer, we don't have any excuses, we don't have any good deeds, then what do we have? Look at what this old hymn says. I love the way this puts this moment in perspective. It shows us that, hey, the bad news so far leads us to the best news The hymn writer says, nothing in my hand I bring, nothing. 
Simply to thy cross I cling. When we stand or we kneel or we buckle before the throne of Jesus, the only plea we will have that will be good enough is the cross. The only plea we have will be the blood of Jesus. And so, yes, you you say, well, I'm coming empty handed. What do I have to offer? Nothing. That's the best part. Because when there's nothing in your hands, you can cling to the cross. When you aren't coming trying to carry all your stuff before God, you can embrace the Savior. You don't have to bring anything to God. The cross is our only plea. Jesus is our Savior, not any of these other things. In fact, Jesus is the inverse of everything Paul laid out in his, in his diagnosis. He fulfilled every area we failed. We were unrighteous, but Jesus is our righteousness, according to 2 Corinthians. We didn't have understanding, but James tells us Jesus gives us understanding. We didn't seek God. We had our backs turned, but Jesus left his heavenly throne to seek us. We didn't do good, but the promise of God in Jeremiah is that God will never stop doing good to us. Our throat was an open grave. Jesus went to the grave. Our feet were swift to shed blood, but Jesus' feet were swift to have his blood shed. We don't fear God like we ought to, but Jesus' promise also in Jeremiah is that he will keep the fear of God before our eyes. It is all Jesus. Your failure in these areas, my failure in these areas is just a setup for the Savior to fulfill it. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The law can't save us. Religion can't save us. Rules can't save us. Paul says this in verse 20, he says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is good, but apart from the spirit, the law can reveal our sin. It can make us aware of our sin, but it cannot save us from our sin. That is only Jesus. And the crazy part about this is he does this despite the dreadful diagnosis Despite how little we have to offer him, despite how completely off the mark we are, God says, I love you as my kids, exactly as you are. I love you for you, not for what you can bring me, not a future version of you that you've polished and cleaned up. I love you. That's the gospel. And that's what we all desperately need to remember. And if we don't know Jesus, we need to cling to it. So if you don't know Christ, the promise for you today is this, is if you will turn to him empty handed, God will take you out from under sin and place you in Christ. And oh, what a joy that is to be out from under the weight, the crushing burden of sin and to be in Christ, identified with the Savior. 
So if you have never trusted in Jesus, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that today. I'm gonna ask everyone in here to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you have never trusted in Jesus and you wanna do that today, you're saying, I realize my sin. I, I realize my need for a savior. I realize how loved I am by Jesus. If that's you, then I want you to do something right now. I wanna lead you in a prayer and this prayer is not magical. I simply want to help you find the words to call out to God for the first time. So if that's you and you wanna trust in Jesus, I want you to repeat this after me to yourself, not out loud. Say, dear God, I see the dreadful diagnosis. I am aware of my sin and my inability to save myself. But today, I want to turn to Jesus, to trust in him as my savior, as my Lord. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to save me, and to walk with me from this day forward. Now, everyone in here, heads still bowed, eyes still closed. If that was you and you trusted in Jesus for the very first time, I want you to do something for me. I want you to lift up your hand right now. No one looking around. This is your decision. I want you to lift up your hand in the balcony and down here. Jasper, I want you to lift up your hand as high as you can, as proud as you can, saying, I am a part of the family of God. I am loved by God. He is my savior. Hold that hand up and I want you to keep that hand up until a response team member comes by. We have a Bible that we wanna give you before you leave so you can start this journey of walking with Jesus. God, I thank you for your mercy, for your grace. You're so good to us. Your love never fails. Your mercies never end. We thank you that despite the diagnosis that you loved us and saved us, God, I pray that you would walk with those who have trusted you today, keep them, love them, pursue them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.